Every time I come here, when it's time for me to speak, I'm ready to go home. Uh, the worship here is something else. And when you enter this place, you sense you're in a place that is special, that God is present, and he's going to do something. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we're here not because we're good, but because we're yours. You know every person in this room. The secrets we can't share. The sin we can't shake. The fear we can't ditch. You know the demons that come in the middle of the night and you've heard also the laughter and the joy. We worship you. Father, in this place at this time, may we hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. We pray for the one who teaches that you would forgive him his sins. They call him reverend and he's not. We would see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was a number of years ago when a man made an appointment with me said he wanted to ask a favor. I was going through a rough time during that time. I was doing an all night show and not getting a lot of sleep and my schedule was pretty intense. So he sat down in my study and he began to talk and I began to sleep. <laughs> I mean really dead asleep. I don't think I snored, but maybe I did, and he was just into what he was saying a lot more uh, than anybody I'd ever met. I remember when I woke up, I was horrified because he said, well, will you do it? <laughs> and I said, but of course. And then when he left, I thought, good heavens, what have I done? Maybe I said I was gonna be on the board of the National Association of Witches. <laughs> or maybe uh, the board of an abortion clinic or something. So I asked my assistant, who was that? And what does he do? Actually, it turned out to be a relatively nice relationship over the years. But when Matt asked me to participate in this series on Awake, assigned me the ninth chapter of John and titled it Blind Man's Bluff, I thought about that time in my study. Let me ask you something, you ever get bored with religion? Man, I do. 
I'm the most religious person in this room. That's all I do. And frankly, I'm tired of it. I write religious books. I teach religious students to be more religious. I pray prayers everywhere I go. I smile, but I don't feel like smiling. I go to worship services all over, talk, lecture on religion. Frankly, sometimes I'm just bored with it. Let me ask you something else. Do you ever get bored with Jesus? If, if you're a new Christian, you don't even know why I asked that question. In fact, you're wondering if I'm saved. But if you've, been, if you've been hanging out with Jesus for very long, you know exactly why I asked that question. It's a part of the Christian life. And in fact, it's been going on from the beginning. It has a formal name to it, by the way. It's called Acedia. The Desert Fathers started talking about the seven deadly sins, and Acedia is one of them. It comes from a word that means grief, and sometimes they translate it as sloth, but they miss it. That's not what it is. It's sometimes called the noonday demon, it's the time when the gold doesn't shine the way it used to. It's a time when the fire that burned in your heart begins to flicker and die. It's the time when you go asleep in your prayers and you can't listen to a sermon and things dry up. Acedia. The noonday demon. If you're a new Christian, you haven't experienced it yet. But hang around and you will. And then remember what I'm going to teach you this morning. It's the ninth chapter of John. I love that chapter. That is a great story. And when you read what Jesus did, it's actual. Did you ever play blind man's bluff? If you did when you were a kid, you knew if you were it, they blindfolded you. And the object was to touch and identify somebody else so they would be it. But in this chapter in John, there's a real it, a real blind person. And the great thing about this chapter is that it's a template, a template showing how Jesus deals with us in a great variety of areas, and in particular, in the area of Acedia. You know the story, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to somewhere, and they noticed a blind beggar who had been blind from birth by the side of the road. And one of the disciples, probably Peter, said to Jesus, Oh man, he must have really screwed it up. Or maybe his parents did. And Jesus said, nonsense. We're going to see God do something in this place. So he called the blind man over. He knelt down, spit on the ground, made mud, put it on his eyes, 
told him to go down to the pool of Siloam, wash it off, and come back and tell him what happened. <laughs> he did exactly what he was told to do, and he could see almost spoken tongues. He, if you'd been there, you would have heard his blind man's beggar cup banging against the rocks by the side of the road, and he's dancing, and he's saying, I can see without glasses. Well, a lot of people were pleased with that, and some not so pleased. Some were confused, some were puzzled, and some were doubting, and they were mostly religious people. The religious leaders, because anything like that can mess with your empire. The religious leaders invited him to come and tell his story. They said, what happened to you? And he said, I don't know, I, just mud. And, and then he told me to wash, and I did. Now I can see without glasses. And they said, what do you think about the man who did this? And he said, I don't know, maybe a prophet. And they went ballistic and said, no, prophet, he did it on the Sabbath, and you don't do stuff like this on the Sabbath. And they kicked him out of the church. This is such a wonderful story. They invite the parents of the formerly blind man to come and talk to them, thinking they'll find an angle to get around what Jesus has done. And the parents, they're old. They don't want to be kicked out of the church. They know the power of religious leaders, and so they ask them, and they say, he's our son. He's an adult. Ask him. <laughs> so... You believe that? They call him back in. By this time, the formerly blind man is really getting ticked. I mean, he's tired of this, and he doesn't give a rip about getting kicked out of the church. And they say, tell us what happened. And he says, are you deaf? Is something wrong with you? Mud? Wash? And I can see, and his name is Jesus. And they said, he's a charlatan. Give glory to God. And he said, that works for me. But I was blind. And now I can see without glasses. So they kicked him out again. <laughs> and then the text said that Jesus found him. And there are a few verses of theological discussion that go on next. At the end of which the blind man falls on his knees and worships Jesus. And the religious leaders, they followed the formerly blind man to see if they could find Jesus and kill him. And they watch all of this, the kneeling, the worship, the discussion. And they say to Jesus, so you're saying we're blind? And Jesus says, duh. <laughs> That's the text with a few editorial additions. <laughs> and we're gonna talk about acedia in the context of that template. But first, I'm gonna go down a side road. My favorite verse in that ninth chapter is the 35th verse, where John says, after he was kicked out, Jesus 
found him. You ever been kicked out of a church? You ever been marginalized, spoken ill of by your friends, the people you thought were friends? You ever been turned away? Jesus knows. The powerful people didn't like him because he didn't have any power. The rich people kicked him out because he wasn't rich. The religious people didn't want to have anything to do with him. He was worse than a wet, shaggy dog shaking himself at a Miss America pageant. <laughs> I mean, it was awful. And because of that, the book of Hebrews says he can identify with us when we're kicked out. You know what I did last week? I talked to a man whose son is a pastor and a drunk. He shed tears when he told me about it. When, when they found out about the pastor's drinking, they had a meeting and they kicked him out. They should have loved him. They should have held him while he wept. They should have. They should have seen him through the dark and helped him get dry, but they kicked, they kicked him out. He eventually uh, got a job at Publix. And I'm gonna do all of my shopping at Publix from now on. You know what they did? They accepted him. They paid for rehabilitation. They kept the job available until he returned and they supported him during the whole process. He has been sober for six months and it is so good. What's Publix doing that for? And why didn't the church do it? But he's kicked out. There's an old story about an African-American brother who tried to get in a white church in the South and they wouldn't let him in. He sadly walked down the stairs and out onto the sidewalk where he met Jesus. Jesus put his arm around his shoulders and laughed and said, they won't let me in either. <laughs> Ever been kicked out? Boy, I have. You wouldn't believe, I irritate people and I don't understand that. <laughs> I really do. I was invited to speak for a major deal in Spain. It was a large mission organization and they wanted me to teach their missionaries and, uh, and their personnel and their staff. And I said I would two years before the event. And then a month before the event, I got a call from the president and he hemmed and hawed and said, uh, and I finally said, hey, I don't know why you called, but for God's sake, get to it. And he said, this is uncomfortable for me, but we've prayed about it and we're gonna have to disinvite you. You're not a good fit. Frankly, I didn't want to go to Spain. I don't want to go to the drugstore. Uh, I, I, and, uh, but it hurt. 
I didn't let him say that, but it hurt. You ever been told you aren't the right fit? Jesus knows and he'll find you. You ever had people that you trusted turn away from you? Jesus knows. He'll find you. You ever been kicked out of a place? Oh man, I have. And every time he found me and he loved me and he said, they don't like me much either. <laughs> and that's okay. All right, I move the previous question. What do you do about acedia? The answer is simple. Nothing, nothing at all, deal with it. You think about that. Amen. No, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> but I almost did. <laughs> you, when you're bored, how do you stop being bored? You can't. It's like telling a drowning man if he would swim, he wouldn't drown. He knows that. Or a blind man, if you would see, you wouldn't be blind. He knows that. Or a bored person, if you just stop being bored, you wouldn't be bored. It doesn't, it doesn't work that. Listen, I've preached enough boring sermons to know that when you've lost them, you've lost them. You should go home. I have a friend who was speaking for one of those mandatory chapels at a Christian college and nobody was listening. The professors were grading papers and the students were on their phones. And nobody was paying attention to him when he got up to speak. He said, hey, listen to me. You don't give a rip what I'm gonna say and I don't wanna say it. So I'm out of here and he closed his Bible, walked out down the aisle and out of the chapel. If I'd been there, I'd have jumped up and cheered. I wish I had the guts to do that. I would, I'd just look at him sleep and keep talking till something comes to mind. There is one thing I teach my students. By the way, I teach my students, but, and they're nervous. I mean, this is new to them. And I must say, before you get into the pulpit, say to yourself, I am God's servant commissioned by the God of the universe. And I have a message to deliver and by God, you will listen, but they won't. There is one way. If you just stop and say sex, they all wake up quick. <laughs> what a, <laughs> One of my students uh, went home for Thanksgiving, told his pastor what I said. <clears throat> and the next Sunday, during the sermon, he just stopped. Everybody was quiet. And he said, sex. <laughs> and everybody jumped and woke up. And he said, Billy told me, his professor said, if I do that, it would wake you up. And he was right. <laughs> but not for long. You, you just can't do anything about acedia. It's there and it's not, you ever tell people, tell you to love the world? 
That's wasted. How do you do that? There are not things you can do about acedia. But there are some things that you ought to learn from this text that will make a difference. So let's look at them. The first thing is that you should kiss the demon of acedia on the lips. In other words, don't pretend, don't deny, don't tell people you're doing fine when you're not doing fine. If Jesus is on vacation to Bermuda somewhere and you're happy about it, you're faking it and that'll never be honored. So, so kiss that demon, accept it. The reality, that's what the blind man did. I mean, it was hard, he was, but he knew he was blind, he had to eat, so he's out begging. So he's dealing with his situation with all of the darkness and pain that that involves. Embrace it, run to it, make it a part of you. Somebody was telling me about um, a woman who worked for an orthopedic surgeon and they were moving the office to a new location and everybody on the staff was helping. And she had loaded up her car with files and boxes. And then she noticed that nobody had picked up the big skeleton that was in the lobby of his office. So she got the skeleton, took it down to her car, didn't know where to put it. So she put it in the seat beside her, got in the car and drove to the new office. <laughs> You're getting ahead of me. <laughs> and she stopped at a stoplight and a guy looked over and he sees the skeleton and she sees the shock on his face. She, she said to him, oh, I'm taking him to our new doctor's office. <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he said, lady, I know it's not my business, but I think it's too late. <laughs> It's kind of like that. It's, it's kind of like you can't fix it. So stare it in the face, embrace it. It's where you are right now. And if you can't fix it, you don't have a problem. You have a fact. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing is, first kiss the demon on the lips. Secondly, go to Jesus and tell him about the demon and wait and be still and watch. We have a new German shepherd in our family. Actually, we weren't going, we've had six. And I wasn't gonna get another. I can't go through that putting your dog down again without being suicidal. And besides, we're old and we didn't want the dog to live longer than we did. <laughs> but she's wonderful. In fact, the breeders came and spent three days training us. She's black, she's gentle. And I said to the breeders, I don't need all of this. We've had a bunch of German shepherds. All I care is that when I say come, the shepherd comes. When I say sit, the shepherd sits. When I say eat, the shepherd eats. And when I say kill, the shepherd kills. <laughs> and she's done all of that. Her name is Annie. And well, I haven't tried the kill thing yet, but I'm just waiting for the 
right elder of the church to come by. <laughs> I repent. That was uncalled for. Do you know what Annie does when there's no water in her bowl? She goes over to her bowl, sits down, and just sits there until I notice and fill the bowl. When your heart's empty, don't do anything, just sit there. When Jesus isn't real anymore and you're bored with this whole thing, don't doubt what he taught you in the, dark, in the light. Don't doubt it in the dark, somebody said. Just sit there and wait and watch. I'm working on a new book. I'm gonna keep doing this till I get it right. And the working title of the book is Laughter and Lament, The Keystones of Christian Growth. Started with laughter, I was gonna teach at the Cove, the Billy Graham Center, and they wanted a topic and I hadn't thought of one, so I said the first thing that came to my mind, we're gonna talk about the laughter of the redeemed. People have asked me, what's that about? And I said, well, we're gonna get together and tell each other our best jokes. And some of the uptight ones weren't altogether happy with that. And then I got to working on it and I began to see the lament and the pain and the darkness that along with the joy is throughout scripture. I spent a good deal of time in the book of Lamentations Listen to some advice from the old white guy. Don't read Lamentations before you go to bed at night. And certainly don't read Ecclesiastes. You'll be up all night and you might be suicidal. <laughs> Lamentations is the saddest book in the entire Bible. I mean, everything's gone wrong. It's dark, there's no hope, there's nothing. In the middle of it, listen to what uh, the third chapter, the writer of Lamentation says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Okay, kiss the demon on the lips. Embrace the demon, take it to Jesus. And then when he does something, tell everybody you know. I love that video on Life Hope. That is so cool, I needed that. Life's hard sometimes, isn't it? I mean, even in the best of times, it's still hard. Uh, and I gotta have testimony. And testimony is the gift that we give to each other. I watched that video and I thought, oh, that is so cool. Testimony, listen, I 
this is awful sometimes. I need to hear your story. Sometimes I want to be a Buddhist. That's why you have to tell me your story. Sometimes I just want to run. So take some time and tell me your story. Sometimes I can't stand this anymore and I need to hear your story because testimony is the gift we give to each other. Martin Luther said, we have to preach the gospel to each other or we get discouraged. He's right. He was saying testimony is the gift we give to one another, but it's also the gift we give to the world. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of being quiet about the God who loves me. I'm tired of smiling and saying politically correct things. I'm, I'm tired of silence. They need my testimony too. <laughs> there's, a, there's a preacher and you'd know his name, but I'm not gonna feed your purient interest by telling you, but he's written a lot of best-selling books and he's made a lot of money and he built a very big house. And uh, the press found out about it and they were highly critical and he was mortified. I had a board member who was a dentist who sent a box of toothbrushes to him and said, I just wanted you to have a toothbrush for every bathroom in your house, <laughs> which was not appreciated. At any rate, he called a press conference and he said, I want you to know it's not what you think. Uh, that house is God's house. It's gonna be places where we have staff meetings and retreats and people get renewed. It's that. And I wanted to say, bull, tell them the truth. I wish, I wish he had said, you know, I write best-selling books if you do that, you could get a house like that. And not only that, I work for a first class God. Who do you work for, Buddha or something? If he had done that, I would speak in tongues. If he had done that, I would have said, that is way cool. You know what God likes to do? He likes to do good things for you. And he always says, go tell somebody. The world is so dark, they need to hear from the children of light. One other thing, and then we'll go have lunch. I can always tell it's time to end a sermon when my stomach growls. <laughs> Kiss the demon on the lips. Take the demon to Jesus. When he fixes it, tell everybody you know. And when it happens again, and it will, remember what I taught you. He'll find you. So you can go out and play. You know, you know what I've noticed? Most people, when they're down, they think they're going to be that way forever. They really do. Me too. And when they're up without booze, they think they're going to be up forever. That's not true either. A part of the Christian life, listen, is when there's a sense that God is left. 
The contemplatives call that the dark night of the soul. And Thomas Akempis said this, sometimes thou dost withdraw thyself from us that we might know the sweetness of thy presence. It'll happen again. Prodigal son went back to the big farm. They don't tell you that in the text, but I know because Jesus is a friend of mine. Now he didn't stay very long. He always remembered the taste of the wine and the sound of the music at the party. So he came home pretty often, but he went there. I saw a cartoon that showed him kneeling before his father. And the father says, okay, okay, but we've already killed four fatted calves. <laughs> we fall into the darkness. It's a part of who we are. When Mother Teresa's posthumously published diary was made public, the pagans laughed and say, see, your saints aren't so saintly when she talked about her doubts and her dark nights. And those of us who know Jesus said, but of course, that's a part of it. It's why we worship him. I have a friend, his name is Israel Moses Kreps. He's a Jewish believer and I was there when Jesus found him and he exploded. He was more fun. I mean, he did, you know what he did after he became a Christian? He'd, he'd call phone numbers random. Just sit down and dial phone numbers and then when somebody answered the phone, he would say, oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong number. And then, then he would start a conversation, bring it around to Jesus and led more people to Christ. I used to say to him, Israel, that's not the way you do evangelism. And he would say, I like it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> and I, this is true. He'd bring those people to church and they'd get involved. I could tell you stories. Well, he's grown up now and he's married and he's got kids and he's an executive. In fact, an owner of one of the largest advertising agencies in South Florida, very successful. I was in Miami last weekend and uh, was speaking at a couple of events and uh, I saw Israel. Whenever I see him, I feel good about the world because of his testimony. He was headed for the airport and he wrote me at the airport on his way to New York. And I thought I'd read a part of that to you. I've actually thought a great deal about you lately and remembered those early days when Jesus found me. I've been on quite the spiritual journey over the last 12 months. I came to the realization that my view of God is that he loves me, sort of. That while I did all the perfunctory duties, that God and I were just roommates. It's been quite a process for me. When you're roommates with Jesus, you live together, you eat together, you're seen together, but the lack of intimacy takes its toll. 
I'm getting better, but it's hard. Pray for me. You know, it's not half bad being a roommate of Jesus. It's really not. You could do a lot worse. But because he likes you so much, he wants so much more. If you listen to what I taught you this morning, be still, wait, and you'll see. You think about that. Amen.